Today's scripture reading is Psalm 103, verses 1 through 19. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Thank you so much, Nikki, for reading God's Word. And as she said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I get to serve as the campus pastor at our Shawnee campus. And I had a joke brewing this morning about how I woke up and it was so foggy that I just accidentally drove to the wrong campus. Uh, But that's not quite uh, what happened. Nathan and I planned this. Uh, We actually had a campus senior pastor retreat this past weekend, so he's at Shawnee this morning. Uh, I'm obviously here at Olathe, and we kind of flipped around so that uh, we each prepared uh, just this one message. Uh, And so he's preaching Psalm 72 over there, and I've got Psalm 103 here. Uh, And it is a joy uh, to be here with you gathered in worship this morning. Uh, Even though I've only been at Shawnee, as Nikki said, about six months, I actually have a long history at Christ Community uh, long before that, as I came through our pastoral residency program and spent five years total uh, on our staff at the Brookside campus from 2014 to 2019. Uh, Then, in the summer of 2019, the Lord called my family and I away uh, for a season to central Kansas uh, for me to serve as the campus chaplain, campus pastor at my undergrad alma mater, Sterling College. Anybody know where Sterling College is? Yeah, okay. A few people uh, in Sterling, Kansas. And so my wife Ashley and I, we, we met there a number of years ago when we were students, and actually my wife is from Sterling originally, so we were kind of back home for her, back towards family, uh, and, and in a role for me to, to serve uh, as, a, as a college pastor, which I have a background in student ministry, so that was a good fit, and we were able to plant a church actually with our best friend from a seminary as well. Uh, but I will say, uh, and I said this then, and I, I affirm it uh, now, it was incredibly, in 2019, it was incredibly hard 
to leave Christ's community. Really, really hard. Our departure then had nothing to do uh, with this place and everything to do about where God was calling us uh, to and towards something, an opportunity to invest in that community. Uh, And it's really, really good to be back. Really, really good to be back. While I appreciated my time serving in higher education, uh, I stepped into that world at a really interesting moment a few months before uh, February, March of 2020. We all know what happened then. And as much as I enjoyed higher ed, I deeply missed full vocational engagement directly with the local church. I mentioned that I, I planted a church, but my, our friend from seminary, he really worked on that project full time. And I would say that the, the, the church plant was my side hustle, right? Uh, so I missed this full engagement, this full vo- vocational engagement with the local church, and specifically I missed this local church, Christ Community. I'm well aware that we are not a perfect church, far from it, but I believe wholeheartedly in our multi-site mission, and I'm convinced that Christ Community's best days are ahead, and that's not because we're so great either, not at all, but God is faithful to his church, often in spite of his people, but he is, he is faithful to his church. And friends, I believe that the Shawnee campus is proof of God's faithfulness. Some of you may know that the Shawnee campus has navigated a challenging last 18 months. There is no doubt that it was a hard season packed with difficult days. And yet, we're still there. And more than that, too, we're not just surviving up in Shawnee. No, in so many different ways, we are thriving. We had over 80 people register and take our Church for Monday class this fall. We had 20 plus students at the youth group Christmas party this last week, which is, that's my, again, my background. So I love to get those pictures with our awesome volunteers loving and serving on those students and their families. In fact, we've got so many families and kiddos packed into children's ministry programming at 9 a.m. that in January, we're adding full programming for them at 1045. And it's not just the momentum of numbers either. We all know that that does not tell the full story of the life of a church. It doesn't. But it's about lives being saved and transformed. And before I got there in June as well, one of my favorite stories is back in February of this year, there was a young woman who came to the Shawnee campus by way of a drug and alcohol treatment center that's within walking distance of the church. It's a short-term rehab program, 28 days. But after she successfully graduated and moved on, she stayed connected with the Shawnee campus, tethered. She had a baby in July, and and let me tell you, just the miles that the Shawnee Campus congregation has journeyed with this young woman and her baby are extraordinary. Friends, what I have observed in my life, and maybe you have too, is that God likes to show up and do his best work when we think it's least possible. Isn't that the story of Christmas? (laughs) What else do we learn from the Christmas season if not that God moves toward our mess rather than away from it. So wherever you find yourself this holiday season, take hope, take courage, find peace, joy, comfort, because I believe, desperately believe, that God is near. God is here. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity uh, to be with another corner of our multi-site family. I do believe in this mission, Lord, and believe that part of, a large part of how you sustained the Shawnee campus through a difficult year and a half was the support and the bearing of burdens that happened across all five of our locations. So thank you that we get to do this, and thank you that we get to do this together. Father, as we open this uh, marvelous bit of text 
Psalm 103. May you speak through me. May I decrease and you increase this morning. And may we walk out of here more like Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, there's a new Christmas movie that's out on Apple TV, and I'm kind of a sucker for Will Ferrell. I hope I'm not alone in that. So I watched it last week, Spirited. Has anybody else watched Spirited yet on on Apple TV? Uh, It's a modern retelling of Charles Dickens' classic novella, A Christmas Carol. And it's fascinating to me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an update. There's definitely some new themes that have been woven in to this classic that we're all familiar with. And one of the new themes is really the central tension of the entire movie. And it fascinated me because it's a tension that centers around a word that you don't hear very much in 2022. The word and really the driving question of the movie is redemption. Redemption. And really, the movie seeks to answer the question, is anybody, are there some among us who are unredeemable? Unredeemable. Which again, I just find nobody really is talking about that anymore. But here you've got a big budget Hollywood movie with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds, and it's seeking to answer that question, is anybody unredeemable? Now, maybe you knew or maybe you didn't, uh, but Spirited is a musical, which they mostly pull off, if I'm honest, but I'm not a monster, and I will not make you listen to Will Ferrell sing this morning, okay? Uh, But I do want to quote, and I won't sing because I'm definitely not a monster and won't uh, subject you to that, but I do want to quote from one of the songs, which has that title, Unredeemable, because I find this fascinating. Here is uh, the song. It's unredeemable. Am I forever unredeemable? Will, Ferrell char- Will Ferrell's character asks. Am I forever unredeemable? Can I be the man who breaks from a lifetime of mistakes? Can my worst be left behind? And do I even deserve to find the kind of love that I could lean on every day? Or will I learn that I have to stay unredeemable? I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? And listen, at the end of the day, I find this interesting, and maybe hopefully you're with me, hopefully I'm not alone. I find this interesting because I find it relatable. I find this deeply relatable. And I don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe we're all in that boat that when we reflect upon the worst moments in our lives, we've all wondered something like this. I'm too far gone. I've screwed up too much. I've made too many mistakes. I'm beyond saving. I'm unredeemable. I've been there. How about you? Which I know is is a little bit of a dark place to take us to initially this morning. It's a little bit of a depressing place to take us to this morning. So how about we allow the light of Psalm 103 verse 4a to shine in just a bit? Nikki read a portion of Psalm 103, and the whole chapter is our text for this morning. It's a magnificent psalm. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface of it in our time together. But I want to start by zeroing in on one specific verse, and in fact, one specific phrase and word within one specific verse, because it connects with this broader theme that we find in the movie Spirited that I'm so interested in. This theme of redemption, this driving question, this relatable question, am I unredeemable. And here is how Psalm 103, 4a answers that question. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, he is the one who redeems your life from the pit. Friends, the good news of Psalm 103 is that redemption is possible. Redemption is possible. Or if we wanted to answer the question from the movie, am I unredeemable? Is anyone unredeemable? The way Psalm 103 answers that question is this, no one's unredeemable. 
No one is unredeemable. No one, no matter what, is unredeemable. Now, this also essentially is the answer that the movie arrives at without giving away any spoilers, but basically this is the answer to that question that the movie gives. So we would do well, I think, to drive a little bit deeper into this idea. I think we should ask by way of follow-up, why is it true that no one is unredeemable? Why is it true that no one is unredeemable? And also, how is it true that no one is unredeemable? And on those two questions, the movie and Psalm 103, they come down in some different places. You might not be surprised by that. So let's anchor ourselves in Psalm 103 and seek to answer those two follow-up questions. Why is it true, according to Psalm 103, that no one is unredeemable? And how is it true, according to Psalm 103, that no one is unredeemable? And the first idea that we'll cover this morning is this. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. King David is the author of Psalm 103, and he starts off the poem. I find this fascinating. He basically gives his soul a pep talk. Isn't that what happens? I mean, look back at the first verses of this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not all his benefits. You know, it seems that David knew what I think we often forget, that it's easy to forget the Lord. It's easy to forget the Lord. How quickly we forget the God who lives in every day and condescends into our world every day. How, how quickly and easy it is for us to depart from that to a place of more mental absent-mindedness. I mean, you guys are doing the screen sanity class, right? Distractions abound in our modern moment. And I love how King David starts this psalm with a pep talk, right? Come on, soul. Come on, heart. Don't forget to bless God. Bless him. Bless his holy name rather than any other name. Bless him, him, him. And why? Why should I? Why should I bless him rather than any other? Because of all his benefits. But before we get there on benefits, let's, let's park on this phrase one a little bit longer. And I want to talk about forgetting not all the Lord's benefits. Because, yes, we need the screen sanity class. Yes, it is a distracted moment. Yes, there is an attention economy and there are people who are motivated to to grab our attention and to to suck it and to move it away from God. Yes, mental absent-mindedness, I think, is part of what this verse means. Forget not God and all his benefits. But when David was writing, I don't even think that's primarily what he means by forget not all his benefits. Because when David was writing, forgetting... And knowing, forgetting, and the opposite of forgetting and knowing, friends, those are relational words. Those are relational words. This isn't as much about distraction. I think that's in there. But ultimately, forgetting the benefits of the Lord is the act of relationally rejecting God for the acceptance of self-centered, sinful pride. It's more something like this. I don't need you, God. I did all this. It's my life, my accomplishments, my money, my success, my redemption by way of my good and better choices. In fact, God who? Right? That is, I think, what David is really driving at here. Yes, it's possible for us to get distracted and to mentally wander away from God. But far more, I think what David is driving at at a deeper level and a more serious level is we start to take credit for all of this. 
and then start to go something like, wait, God who? No, 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 no. I did all this, and we must not. That's why David starts. And right from his position as king of Israel, right, how easy would it have been for him to survey all that he had, quote, accomplished and to forget not the Lord and all his benefits, or to forget the Lord and all his benefits. And he doesn't want to. He recognizes the possibility. Maybe he's even reflecting upon times in his life where he had done that. And so he gives his soul a pep talk. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And this is mightily important. Again, right? Where did we start? Redemption begins only when we recognize how much we need it. And David continues to unpack this idea as we move forward. I think evidence of that is found in the first benefit that he lists. So verses 1 and 2, they're the pep talk, right? And he tees you up at the end of verse 2, forget not all of God's benefits. And then in verse 3, through the end, really, he's extolling and he's unpacking the virtues of God's benefits upon his and by extension upon our lives. And what's the first benefit? That seems relevant, doesn't it? If the end of verse 2 is this reminder, this pep talk to himself to forget not the Lord and his benefits, what's benefit number one? What's benefit number one? Psalm 103, verse 3. The first benefit that David moves to recognize is that the Lord is the one who forgives all your iniquity. Iniquity. Now, iniquity is one of the words that the Bible uses to describe our sin, our rejection of and rebellion against God and his ways. Which brings us to this fascinating crossroads that I think we have to reckon with this morning. You see, Psalm 103 is one of the most beautiful, beloved psalms out of all 150 that we have to choose from. It's in the top 10, the top 5, the top 3, right? It's right up there with Psalm 23. I think it's in the top. And yet, How deeply do we understand that a central driving component of this psalm is the problem of human sin? How how much do we recognize that? How deeply do we understand it? And listen, I know that it's not fun to sit in the muck and mire of our sin, but we have to because redemption only begins when we recognize how much we need it. And so I want us to remember a little more if you will, with me this morning, humanity's capacity for sin. And I want us to to use Psalm 103 verses 6 and 7 as a launching pad into that project. Those verses read this way. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And friends, immediately upon reading these verses, I'm transported into the middle of the book of Exodus. In fact, I'm transported immediately into the Sinai Desert alongside the nation of the people of Israel. Go there with me, right? Verse 6, it's a clear reference to God's miraculous and righteous deliverance of his people from the unjust oppression that they were suffering in slavery and Egypt. That's verse 6. They're now out of Egypt. But then verse 7 drives the point home even more. It explicitly names Moses, receiving knowledge of God's ways, God's ways, A direct reference, I believe, to God's revelation of himself and his holy law. And friends, these stories are captured for us in the book of Exodus. And one of the climactic moments in the flow of these events, in the flow of this story, is detailed out in chapters 32, 33, and 34 of the book of Exodus. And those chapters are worth revisiting in full. 
If it's been a while since you've read the book of Exodus, I'd encourage you to do that some time this week because they are a stunning portrait of humanity's capacity for sin and God's capacity for mercy. And I am deeply convinced that they were in the background for David as he sat down years later, decades later, centuries later, to pen Psalm 103. I think they are related. But in brief, by way of reminder of what's happening in Exodus 32, 33, and 34... Moses is receiving God's revelation of himself in his law, right? Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses. So he's up on the mountain doing that. And what happens? The people tire of waiting for him to return. They tire of waiting for him to return and they demand instead that Aaron, Moses, his brother, fashion for them, this is what the text says in Exodus, fashion for them some gods who can lead them. Some gods who can lead them. We talked about how forgetting and knowing are relational words. And I I think what happens in Exodus 32 is that the people of Israel, they forget Moses. And by way of forgetting Moses, they forget God. I mean, what do they say? As for this Moses, we don't even know what's happened to him. But it's not mental absent-mindedness. This is mere months after their miraculous deliverance from Egypt and the clutches of Pharaoh. This is mere months after they sat at the banks of the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army bearing down upon them. The pillar of smoke and fire goes up to protect them. Moses sticks his staff in the water. The Red Sea parts. They carry through unencumbered and Pharaoh's army is swallowed up afterwards. They didn't wander away mentally and forget in that sense from this incredible deliverance. They made a conscious choice to forget Moses and God, to rebel and reject Moses and God. Here they are, just mere months later, saying, Aaron, fashion for us some gods who can lead us. As for this Moses fellow, we don't know what happened to him. Oh, how quickly we forget. Here is God's deeply understandable response to this rebellion and rejection. I mean, enter into the tragedy of this with me. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people. You know, parents in the room, has that ever happened to you with your kids, right? Your son or your daughter does something and you go to your spouse and you're like, your son, (laughs) your daughter, right? Like, does that not feel a little bit like what God's doing here? Go down for, for your people, not my people. Your people, but of course they're God's people, but you understand, right? Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it. They have sacrificed to it. They have even said, these are your gods, O Israel. These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff Necked people. Now, this is very clearly not Israel's finest moment. But friends, how much better are we? How much better am I? When I think back upon my life, stiff-necked, stubborn, quickly forgetting God, quickly to turn aside, those are pretty good descriptors if I'm being really honest. So yes, again, Exodus 32 is not Israel's finest 
moment, but how much better are we? And we have to be, because redemption only begins when we recognize how much we need it. Remember back to where we started this morning, Psalm 103, verse 4a. The good news of that verse is that redemption is possible, but did you catch when we walked through it briefly where we are being redeemed from in Psalm 103, verse 4a? We're being redeemed from the pit. The pit. The pit doesn't sound good, and it's not. The pit is a trap. The pit is a place of deep bondage and even destruction. It's a place that's all too easy to fall into and all too difficult to escape from. The pit is a lot like quicksand. Try to pull yourself out and you're only going to fall deeper in. You're only going to get more stuck. You are only going to sink down deeper into the pit. So friends, church, redemption begins when we recognize how bad the pit is. We got to face the brutal facts of the pit. When we recognize how serious our situation is and how much we need help, that is when redemption begins. But there's more. Thanks be to God, there is more. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it, but redemption also continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. Redemption continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. Friends, fear not. Psalm 103 brings us good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Yes, it is true that the tragedy and reality of human sin, and not just the idea of it, but the sin of the people of Israel, my sin, your sin, our sin, that is a central component, a driving theme of Psalm 103. But at every single moment that we discover sin, iniquity, transgression, any of those within Psalm 103, Did you notice, as Nikki read, what was always, always, always associated with it? We've zeroed in on the iniquity in Psalm 103.3, but notice what God is doing in Psalm 103.3 with that iniquity. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. He who forgives all your iniquity. So yes, before we talk about forgiveness, we have to talk about iniquity first, but we can't stop by only talking about iniquity. We have to see that God is forgiving our iniquity, forgiving our sin, forgiving our rejection, forgiving our rebellion, forgiving the misguided and bankrupt revolution that we're all on here. That's what God is doing. That is the good news of great joy that Psalm 103 delivers us. And the middle part of the psalm, I think, does so even more. Uh, Verses 6 and 7, they transported us into the Sinai Desert. They transported us into Exodus 32, where we had to look in the face of the people of Israel's sin and inequity and rebellion, and by extension, our own. But catch what happens as you carry forward deeper into the psalm. You've got Psalm 103, verses 6 and 7, but what comes after that? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. And here it is. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Oh, friends. I think these verses are some of the most extraordinary that have been penned in all of Scripture. 
the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. Let's just park there for a moment. Because again, remember what's in the background of these verses. It's the depth and the depravity of our sin and our iniquity and our rebellion. And let's zero in on that phrase, slow to anger. You know, my wife Ashley and I, we've been married. Actually, tomorrow is our 13-year wedding anniversary. Uh, And we've got three kiddos, three boys, uh, seven years old, five years old, and two years old, Bevan, Owen, and Ethan. And when I think, as I've asked you to think about the depth of your sin and iniquity and transgression and rebellion, when I think about that in my own life, if I'm really honest, my worst moments where I wonder the most about whether or not I'm unredeemable come from my parenting failures, come from my parenting sins. My my worst moments that I'm most ashamed of come from moments where I was what with my kids? I was quick to anger. I was quick to anger with them and they did not deserve it. And then yet, as, as my heavenly father, as the God of the universe, he looks at my quickness to anger and how does he respond? In the face of my sin, iniquity, and rebellion, and rejection of him and his ways, he says, in spite of your quickness to anger, I will retain my ability and my character to be what? Slow to anger. And the original phrase here actually is that God's got a long nose. Did you know that? Now, God doesn't literally have a nose. It's a Hebrew idiom, but it's, it's expressing this idea. Have you ever seen a bull that's getting ready to charge, right, like in a cartoon? Right? What's coming out of the bull's nose? Steam, right? It's this idea that a charged bull, that getting ready, rearing back. What is that bull? Is that bull happy? That bull is angry. And so the Hebrew idiom is communicating that God has a long nose. It takes a long time for the anger to come out of his nose. And that is in spite of my quickness to anger. That is in spite of whatever it is you're thinking about when I invite you to recognize the severity of your sin and iniquity and transgression and rebellion. Verse 10, God doesn't deal with you according to that. He could, he should maybe even in our schema, in our economy of the world, but he chooses not to. He's slow to anger and he does not deal with you and he does not deal with me and he did not deal with the people of Israel according to that. He does something different. He does something different. And verses 11 through 13, they unpack what God does that's different. I love this. It's where I'm drawing the phrase father or the word father. Redemption continues when we surrender to the rescue of our father. Where am I getting that? Well, verses 11 through 13. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Surrender to the rescue of the Father. Now notice with me, back to verses 11 and 12 if we can on the the screen for a second. Notice with me the difference in what these verses do, right? Verses 11 and 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, can you measure that? So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, do you know how far that is? It's infinity, it never stops. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. The point of verses 11 and 12 is to overwhelm us 
with the sheer size of God's love for his people and to drive fully home the point that when God rescues you, he rescues you. We sang that this morning, right? What God says, he does, so I can believe it. It's as good as done. Right? Verses 11 and 12, they like kick down the door and they drag us outside into the expanse of the universe. It raises our vision up. It raises our vision to the east and to the west. And they say it overwhelms us with how big God is and how he's got that love and it's directed towards you and me. That's verses 11 and 12. But verse 13 shifts the tone, doesn't it? Verse 13 does something different. Verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. One commentator remarked of this beautiful contrast. He writes this, by verses 11 and 12, we are brought out, we are let out into a large place. You can't get bigger than the east is from the west. We are let out into this large place. Why? So that we can walk in freedom. By verses 11 and 12, we are led out into a large place to walk in freedom. By verse 13, we are brought home. Home to the living room of our Father. Right now, I've framed our response to this extraordinary rescue. Redemption continues when we surrender to the rescue of our Father. And we've certainly already discussed in the first point, the first idea the need for us to recognize the depth and depravity of our sin. But I think the question remains of how do we tie those together? Okay, so I've recognized, I've recognized the depth and depravity of my sin. How do I surrender to the rescue? And there's a key word here that we have to insert. The important word, the important idea of repentance. Repentance. Let's define repentance using words, using those words that we've already explored this morning. Repentance is the recognition of sin and a full surrender to a different way of life. A full surrender to a God-centered way of life. A full surrender to not forgetting the Lord and all of his benefits. Or we could say repentance is the confession of sin and a turning away from it. Repentance is our step of response In God's rescue plan, do you want to surrender to the rescue of the Father? Then friends, recognize and repent of your sin. Recognize and repent of your sin. This is how redemption continues. But there is a tension that we've left to, that we are left this morning to unpack. There is one more tension, right? We have answered the question of why. Why is it that no one is unredeemable? Psalm 103.8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the why. This is the why. Why is no one unredeemable? Because God is merciful. Because God is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. This is why no one is unredeemable. But what about how? How is God's rescue plan ultimately fulfilled? What is God's mechanism for the redemption of humanity from their sin? Well, I want to dip back into Exodus one more time. And we're not dipping back into Exodus randomly. We're dipping back into Exodus because Psalm 103.8 is not original to King David. It fits perfectly within the flow of the psalm, but he copied and pasted it from the story in Exodus that we covered earlier. Not Exodus 32, where the people of Israel actually actually rebel against God, 
But two chapters later, it's Exodus 34. And so all of that in Exodus 32 is in the background. All of Israel's rebellion, their rejection of God, their choice to forget him and to worship a golden calf. And yet, this is how God chooses to reveal and characterize himself to Moses. You'll notice Psalm 103.8, but this is back in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 9, 6 and 7, sorry. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Church, the highlighted clause on the screen lays bare the tension that we have to resolve this morning and raises the question, how can God both forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, but then, as it says, also not clear the guilty? How is it that both of these things can be true? He can forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin because he is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger, but also it says, who will by no means clear the guilty, How is it that both of these things can be true? And the answer is found in Advent. The answer is found in Christmas. The answer is found in Jesus. You know, a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 2, we discovered that God has anointed his son as king, giving him the nations and rulers of nations as his ultimate heritage, which that king sounds powerful, doesn't he? I mean, they have the kings of the world, but then God's son is the king and he is anointed to rule and reign over all of them. It's not hard to imagine this king's triumphant entry, his powerful coming onto the scene. But is that what happens? No, Luke 2 reveals that the coming of God's son, the king, was this extraordinary reversal of expectations. You see, King Jesus is born humbly to a virgin an unwed teenager in the backwater town of Bethlehem. King Jesus is Lord of the universe, yes, but he is now also remarkably humble, remarkably vulnerable, remarkably low to condescend from the trappings of heaven to live on earth. But lower than that still would he go. For God's rescue plan required a sacrificial death, a willing and perfect substitute who could then bear the, transfer of the, bear the transfer of the guilt of God's people, could bear the iniquity, the sin, and the transgression of God's people, which is the answer to the question of how, my friends. How did God ultimately fulfill his rescue plan? By laying our guilt, sin, iniquity, and transgression upon the one, upon Jesus, who knew none of that. And this is how God rescued. That's what Psalm 103 is about. Yes, it's about your sin and my sin, but even more so, Psalm 103 is about the king's rescue. The king's rescue. And there's more good news about this rescue even still. Because you see, redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. It continues when we surrender to the rescue of the Father. And redemption is completed when King Jesus comes back again. Redemption is completed when King Jesus comes back again. Because I know you feel this with me, right? Today, in this moment, December 11th, 2022, our world is still a very broken place. 
You and I, we, we feel that. We live that. We experience that. And those of us who follow Jesus, we are not exempt. Yes, it's true that no one who comes in repentant surrender to the Father by way of King Jesus is unredeemable. That is our great and glorious hope. But what is also true is that redemption is not yet perfectly complete. Those of us who are united in King Jesus are already redeemed, yes, but we're also not yet fully redeemed. But friends, the extraordinary news, good news of Advent is that it is, yes, about Jesus' first coming, his first arrival, born humbly to Mary, placed in a manger. But Advent, maybe even a little more, ought to be about the anticipation that we all have, should have, for Jesus' second coming. Because on that day, redemption will be completed. On that day, we will be perfectly, fully redeemed. Sin, which is defeated now, will be destroyed then. It will be as we sing this time of year in the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And did you know that Joy to the World is actually more about thematically Jesus' second coming, his second advent, rather than his first? So I love that we sing it during Christmas because Advent is about both of those comings, both of those advents. And the lyrics of that song They sing this, when Jesus comes back again, he will no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No, rather, he comes to make his blessings flow. Or maybe we could say, as Psalm 103 says, he comes to make his benefits flow far as the curse is found. Friends, no one is unredeemable. No one is unredeemable. Redemption begins when we recognize how much we need it. It continues when we repentantly surrender to the rescue of the Father. And redemption will be completed in full, perfectly, when King Jesus comes back again. God made a way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that it's true that no one is unredeemable. Thank you that... In the face of this tension of how it is that you were going to be merciful and gracious, how it is that you were going to forgive and restore and redeem and yet yet not pardon the guilty, you found and made a way centered in your son Jesus. Thank you, Father, that, that we have him, that he came once and thank you that he's coming again. Because those of us that are in him, we are grateful for our redemption, but we yearn for more. This world, in fact, groans for more, God. And so please, Father, send Jesus back quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, so that you will no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. We love you, Father. We love you, King Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.